0: Blue-green bumphead parrotfish, 40 strong, pass by gatherings of Napoleon wrasse as large as people. Above them, milling schools of jacks cast predatory eyes over the fish below. Sharks hove in and out of view, gliding effortlessly across the reef, cutting tunnels through scattering clouds of fish as they pass. Palmyra has more apex predators, large fish like sharks, jacks and groupers, than any other reef known to science. Added together, there are nearly 20 times as many big fish here as on the average reef that is exploited by people for food. In the year 2000, Palmyra was bought by the Nature Conservancy to manage as a wildlife refuge for the benefit of humanity. It remains virtually unfished, apart from a small amount of catch-and-release recreational angling. Palmyra's isolation has spared it from the scourge of human overfishing below water but the vigilance of conservationists is necessary to keep it pristine. There are other atolls in the nearby Phoenix Islands that have been stripped of their sharks in a few weeks by roving pirate vessels that hunt without licence or permit. They operate much as Fanning and his fellow sealers and whalers once did, roaming the oceans in search of places where money waits to be caught. The grand residences of Stonington and dozens of other New England ports were built with barrels of whale oil, seal pelts and salt cod. Throughout much of the world today, however, fishing is no longer an occupation where fortunes can be made by law-abiding captains. In just the last 50 to 100 years, the brief span of a single human lifetime, people have spent much of the wealth of oceans, although the effects of over-exploitation can be traced back much further in time. Today's generations have grown up surrounded by the seeming normality of coasts and seabeds scarred by the rake of thousands of passes of the bottom trawl and emptied of much of their riches. Every year I take a student class to Grimsby on the Yorkshire coast of England to sift the sand and mud of the foreshore for worms. This once mighty Victorian fishing port sits at the mouth of the Humber estuary facing the North Sea. Its fish dock juts like a wedge into the mudflats reclaimed by 19th-century engineers to service hundreds of fishing vessels. In its heyday, boats crammed the harbour five or ten abreast, and the quayside thronged with fishers, auctioneers, merchants and carriers. At dawn, great cod and halibut covered the fish market floor, so large that they were sold individually. Today the dock stands almost empty although Grimsby is still a centre for trade in fish plucked from far distant waters like those of Iceland, Africa and even Pacific Islands. My class comes here to look at the effects of coastal squeeze, where today's rising sea levels press shore life into a narrowing band against the stone buttresses of the dock. Scattered rocks and seaweed fronds punctuate the blank mud, among them twisted clumps of dead oyster shells smoothed by more than a century of tides. No living oysters grow in the Humber today, These polished shells are all that is left of reefs built by thousands of generations of oysters in the tide-swept channels of the estuary. Their fragmentary remains were torn from some reef in centuries past by dredgers who destroyed the animals' habitat as they fished. Over many decades, they wore away the reefs until at last only mud remained and the hard bottom needed by oysters was gone. This book is an account of the history of fishing and the effects it has had on the sea. In it I take the reader from the dawn of commercial sea fishing in 11th century Europe to the present, in a voyage through time and around the world. The media today are full of shrill stories of the collapse or imminent destruction of fish stocks that have fed humanity for hundreds of years, if not longer. My aim is to show how we have arrived at this low point in our relationship with ocean life. In doing so, I concentrate on places for which the archaeological and historical record are sufficiently complete to understand the trajectory of changes to the sea and the sequence of events that cause them. I draw extensively on examples from the New World and Europe, as well as hitching rides on the global voyages of sealers, whalers and modern high seas fishing fleets. But I could not find sufficient material on changes in Asian seas to write about them in detail, and apologise to readers looking for insights into this region. Asian seas are in much the same poor state as those in places I do describe, and readers may surmise that similar processes have been operating. In my work as a scientist, I find that few people really appreciate how far the oceans have been altered from their pre-exploitation state, even among professionals like fishery biologists or conservationists. A collective amnesia surrounds changes that happened more than a few decades ago, as hardly anyone reads old books or reports. People also place most trust in what they have seen for themselves, which often